Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the 1099 for the week of September 12th, 2016. I'm your host as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the managing editor at Kotaku and a former writer for Zam, Paste. And I was going to list the rest, but there's a lot here. So I'll just <laughs> say a medley of other sites. Riley McLeod. Riley, how are you doing today? Uh, good, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, I am. I survived the hurricane. I live in Jacksonville, so we just oh, had right. a giant storm come through. Um, and the worst of it, like there was no damage to my apartment, but my dog oh, is good. afraid of thunderstorms, heavy rain. Oh, no. Not the game, but actual heavy rain. And <laughs> um, dark. She hates the night because last time, <laughs> it's a weird story, 4th of July, she was outside when there's a firework and just completely oh, no. ruined her for going out at night. Yeah. So the process of getting her to go to the bathroom was just like, she's a 70 pound dog. So I'm carrying her down three Aww. flights of steps because she cannot like physically go down. So it was like, take her down, pee, and then immediately shoot back up. So really, when I say I survived the storm, it's like I survived my dog. <laughs> Not going to the bathroom for twenty hours. Oh god, at a time. that's awful. What kind of dog is it that it's seventy uh, pounds? I'm like, she is a um a lab hound mix. Oh and, wow, um, big body, tiny legs. That's not tiny dog. legs, yeah. but like kind of like comically small legs. legs. Yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, she's really passed out in the bed behind me. But oh, um, I could talk about my dog all day. But instead, uh, what I want to talk about <laughs> is your cool title. You're yeah. the managing editor of Kotaku, which is I like. Am. A cool thing. So just to kind of paint a clear picture here, what's your actual role like at Kotaku? <laughs> um, so I'm mostly in charge of making sure that everyone is doing the sort of day-to-day things. Um, someone at our company recently told me that the job of the managing editor is to solve everybody's problems and then think of all the problems they're going to have tomorrow and oh, then God. solve those too. No, that sounds stressful. Uh, it is. <laughs> so mostly I just like make sure everybody's on track. I try to think of how I can help them. I try to see like what people are working on, what games are coming up, how we're covering them, have a lot of calendars and schedules. And um, I also interface a lot with the other sites at Gawker and try to see what everybody else is doing. And yeah, just do a lot of like day to day schedule stuff. Do um, you still get to write? Um, not as much as I'd like to, um, just in terms of not having a ton of time, but yeah, totally. Like we all sort of do everything on our site and we have a, a pretty slim staff. So we all do a bit of everything. Um, so I do get to write sometimes. Um, and something that I like about Kotaku is I think that the things that we cover are really based on what like writers are interested in and stuff. So if there's a game I'm excited about, we're like, yeah, write about it. Like we're very what we cover and how we cover things comes out of people and their interests, um, which is really great. Like the, the job of a managing editor is not the normal, like just associate editor job. I mean, when you look at like a job <laughs> posting, you have to have a very specific yeah. set of skills to have that. So, I mean, what was that interview process like? Um, I, someone had shown me the, that they were hiring and I sort of, definitely had this feeling of like oh man who gets a job like that huh i guess i'll apply like i don't know if this is a bad story to tell um and i kept getting interviews and i kept being like this is some kind of weird joke right like why do they keep calling me um i think what really helped for me was that i had i had been games freelancing but i'd also been an editor for a long time i'd been managing editor at haywire mag which is a small website um I used to run a publishing company and was like acquisitions editor there. So I think I had a lot of the skills that I needed just from doing a lot of other stuff. Um, so that was all pretty good. Um, I have a master's degree in library science. So oh, I'm, uh, 
I have a lot. Of, I also have a master's degree in theology, which is not as useful. Uh, <laughs> but cool uh, to say. So I think that's one of those, yeah, like, on a LinkedIn profile, you want to, like, bold and italicize and be like, look at this. <laughs> it told our editor-in-chief some story a while ago about how I used to be a prison chaplain, and he was like, why didn't you put that in your resume? And I was like, well, it, it didn't really seem relevant to the job. What are you talking he's about? Like, yeah, it's but relevant it's cool. to everything. He was like, yeah, you should have put that down. I was like, oh, all right. Um, which does feel relevant because I think when people are stressed out, I'm like, how are you feeling? Let's talk about your feelings. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think I just had a lot of like management skills and a lot of information skills. I think a lot about how we organize information and how our systems work and because um, I'm just kind of a nerd for that kind of stuff. So. Um, we use Trello and I'm constantly like, well, what if I just move the categories and they made more sense? Like, let's categorize everything. So these small um, passions really, in the end, totally worked out for a job like this. Yeah, it totally worked out, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's good. And again, I mean, you've written freelance for Exam, Paste, Unwinnable, Critical Distance, yeah. Offworld, Kill Screen. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, uh, of your time appearing at those different sites, what did you kind of find to be the most effective way to pitch your ideas to different editors? Because I did, um, I was freelancing for Paste, which is an amazing place. And like yeah, IGN, Paste is great. IGN, uh, GameSpot. You know, VG247, Video Gamer. But then I kind of eventually went pretty much exclusive to GameSpot. And the pitching process was very much like, hey, Kevin Van Ord, can I please review this small game that someone just sent me? And he's like, I don't care. Go for it. Uh, <laughs> oh. So the pitching process wasn't this huge deal. You, I, I kind of grew yeah. this relationship with Kevin. And it became like, all right, can I do this? Or can I write this news story or something like that? But for you, when you're writing at that many different places, it's a balancing act. Understanding what each editor wants. You know, you yeah, have different totally. varying relationships with each one. But did you kind of find a catch-all, like, here's the way I pitch, or was it just different from editor to editor? Um, it was different. I think, like you're saying, like, at some point you develop these relationships with folks and you you have ins at places, but I think, like, especially when you're just starting out, it's, like, so intimidating to be like, oh, I'm just going to send an email to so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Huh, that'll work. Um, I think uh, something I definitely practiced when I was freelancing more would be turning idle speculations into pitchable ideas like it definitely would like i'd be riding the train and be like hey i wonder about this thing and i was like pitch it just like pitch it sum it up like you can do it like just getting better at just like pitching and pitching and pitching um and i think having pitched a lot and reading a lot of pitches like being able to concretely summarize your idea right like no editor wants it three paragraph email about your like just be succinct and clear tell me what it is and why it's interesting like um and just always looking for new ideas and and looking for things that sites seem like they'd be interested in and um but i think just pitching a ton is really the that's really the secret um it's, it's a skill that i feel like a lot of people don't really get a good chance to learn like actually yeah, pitching okay. to someone is something uh when i first got into freelancing i read and i've said it multiple times this podcast but i read nathan minier's up up down down left right which I yeah i've heard that it's a, it's a smart book then it helped yeah. me like early on but like over the course of time you kind of got to find your own pitching style and i agree it's this weird balance between like do i want to really go into detail to make sure they get the idea or do i want this to be like a really succinct single paragraph saying like here's my idea like this is why yeah, it makes right. sense. You, go you don't have to it. write the whole piece. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so, but there, this, there's this compulsion to almost just like you are so used to like writing in detail. So you're like, all right, here's half the piece. Do you want the yeah. rest of it? Like unlock the rest <laughs> yeah. if you just pay me some money. But like, did yeah. you, how much kind of, you mentioned you, you had these thoughts like on the subway or train or something like that and you pitched them right away. Did you usually try to get a certain portion of it re- like fully realized in your head? Or let's say if you're, article 
required an interview with someone? Did you make sure like, okay, I have this interview ready to go and it's all confirmed and then you'd pitch or was it kind of just you'd pitch and then hope for the best afterward? Hmm. Yeah, I feel like when I've done interviews, it'd be someone I had like already spoken with about possibly interviewing and then doing it that way. I don't know if that's the best way to do it. Um, with other stuff, I often did not have it written and uh, full disclosure, sometimes <laughs> got pitches accepted and was like, oh, shit shit okay <laughs> yeah i could i could write that idea sure that that's fine um but you know i think you you usually can or um so so there's sometimes there was a bit of scrambling of people being like that's yeah. a great idea and i'd be like oh <laughs> what was it yeah i could, I could figure it out having something good going in but it's also i think it's hard with pitching and freelancing like you don't want to spend all this time writing a thing or whatever and then not be able to sell it right like i mean obviously you should write not for money like write a thing you want to write but like I think you you learn to get thoughtful with your time and and learn to like manage your time and um you know pitch an idea with a pretty good foundation even if you haven't necessarily worked on it yet. Um, the interview thing can be weird though. Where um, my first IGN feature, I had already had interviews like ready to go with like Lauren Landing and Greg Kasavin, and I was like, all right, great, awesome, <laughs> let's go. And then I had to, I then I pitched to IGN, so I was like, oh, if they don't say yes. Then I'm yeah. just gonna be sitting here with these interviews with like these two people who I respect a lot and like yeah. they already said yes and I have to come back and be like nope they don't want us <laughs> like it's a weird <laughs> process with interviews that I'm never really it's like oh should I already have this set up should I have the questions written but you know like you said you yeah. don't you want to write something of course for the sake of writing it but when you're a freelancer you're very often scrambling especially if you're yeah, a totally. freelancer to make sure you get that money so to there's this weird should i set it up beforehand or should i not uh yeah. and before kotaku i mean you were all over the place was it now that you have this full-time work it has to be it's still stressful it's still busy but there's also <laughs> yeah. this feeling of like whew, now i don't have to go you know to eight different people and hope that you know i get the paycheck at the right time was there a moment where you're like maybe i should just get a full-time non-writing job and stop scrambling all over for freelance stuff? Yeah, I had been sort of wanting to move back into full-time work for a while. I'd been freelancing for, like, maybe three or four years at that point. Um, and there's a lot of, like, freedom there. Like, I think it's sort of the weird myth of freelancing is, like, you can take off in the middle of the day and just go on vacation whenever you want. Um, and the flip side of that is that you have to always be working and always everything resets, you know. It's not like yeah. you get a paycheck and then you get a new paycheck. It's like you just always have to be working. And I think I got, like, really – I started to sort of burn out about, like, working at home. And, like, my big joke about, like, the flip side of of working from home is living at work. Mm-hmm. And, I, yeah. and they feel like with freelancing it can get easy to just always be working and always be working. And now I'm still always working, but it's different, <laughs> I guess. Um, and so, but I like it. Like, I like the freedom. I like the, or like the freedom, like the, like, I think especially games freelancing, at least all the people I met, like, everybody is so supportive and helpful. And, like, I like that sort of sense of, like, camaraderie and, and folks all helping each other out and getting to do a bunch of different stuff at a bunch of different places. Um, I'm also super, as like a as a person, like super into team, and so I really like being at Kotaku and and being on a team and having a team of people um, and having those be the same people and and getting to support those folks is like really satisfying. It's strange how like everyone's competitive because they want to get work, but it's strange how like non adversarial in that way freelance the freelancing community in games is. Like, <laughs> there's not a lot of like, oh goddamn, that guy he stole that article that I wanted. To, like, he, he stole that spot that should have been mine at IGN, or you got this full time job. That's everyone's very. I feel like everyone kind of knows yeah. each other, and everyone's very supportive of each other, even if they're all going for the same job. Like when 
uh, JV Gwaltney, uh, who I yeah, had recently, totally. when he got the Game Informer spot. I was like, that's uh, something I, I wanted, but I'm super happy he got that. And there's not yeah. a lot of like a whole bunch of fuck yous being thrown around. Like, yeah, totally. It's surprising. <laughs> Yeah, that guy's great, by the way. He's fantastic. Um, it took me like oh, a good. solid hour to learn how to pronounce his name before I had him on here. Um, <laughs> I was on a live stream with him once, and I think he told me before it started. It's <laughs> so I, was like, I wanted to get it right the first time. I have this thing, because my name is Josiah Renaud, and everyone gets it wrong. I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to get this right. Like, You just wait. Yeah. I'm going to look at random YouTube videos where someone says it right and eventually pronounce <laughs> this correctly. Um, oh, I mean, my last name is McLeod. It's a nightmare. Nobody yeah, can pronounce I, it. That was another one I um, woke up. I was like, what is that? Really I know. Um, it's like in Highlander. Come on. Um, <laughs> Do you work in the office at, at Kotaku? It's not like an at-home thing? Yeah, we have um, a lot of folks are remote, and then we also have an office. And I think about five of us work in the office now. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five of us are in our sort of office. I mean, we're in the, like, Gawker offices proper. Um and then we have some folks who are remote. Um, so we have people pretty much on shift like 24 hours a day. Like we have someone in Japan. We have someone in Australia, um, which is definitely a, a fun challenge for the managing editor. Like I've been out and gotten messages at midnight and my friends are like, what? And I'm like, work. <laughs> uh, which are usually just, hey, what's up? And I'm like, hey, how's it going? Um, but uh, yeah, I really, like, I, I really like going to the office. I know that a lot of people don't, but um, I think especially after like like people broadly but i think especially after working from home for so long it's like it's still neat to me there are people and there's coffee and i'm like look at all these people hey i'm not at home is it was it a hard transition though because so i worked in an office and now we've moved to we used to do four days a week in the office one one at home and now we swap that to four at home one in the office um so i have that with my full-time job and then my other job with um tan gentleman and sony santa monica that's fully at home so yeah. there's this weird thing where I love it. Like I love working from home, but there's also this fear of like, is it going to be really hard to go back? Is it going to be hard yeah. to wake up, you know, an hour earlier? Cause you're considering I actually take a shower. I have to make the yeah, drive. I have to get dressed. Like there's just, there's different advantages working at home. And was that transition difficult at the start? It wasn't actually. I, th- I was really, really worried about it. I was worried, like, oh, I'm going to be awful at an office. I'm not going to know how to like interact with people. I'm going to have to <laughs> change my shirt every day. Like, this is going to be the worst. Um, but it's been pretty much fine. The thing I think I've actually struggled with the most, um, and our editor in chief rags me about this all the time, is I, I tend to talk to myself a lot or make a lot of sounds, mm-hmm. which I just got really used to working from home and just like talking to my computer and talking to my email. And I think sometimes <laughs> I like, if I'm frustrated, I'll make a lot of like noises and I need to like, remember that people are sitting around me um i think my uh steven has gotten really good at telling what i'm struggling with based on the sounds that i make which, which <laughs> makes me worried well i'll be like hmm and he's like i bet that this is happening and i'm like yes that, that's right um so that was a little bit a little hard i think um but mostly i feel like now when i work from home it's if i'm super multitasking like i think at least for me something that's hard about if i'm writing something because my gaming computer is at home Sometimes it'll be like I'll, I'm missing one screenshot that I need for a oh, review yeah. or something, and it's like I have to call my roommates and be like, "Okay, here's this wacky thing. Like, um, it's a guy on a on a bike, maybe, but not this one." And like that's sometimes just like really silly, where it's like, "Oh, I wish I were at home." But uh, um, usually, if I'm working from home, I'm multitasking more. Like if I'm trying to get a game review out or something. So I like going to the office now because it it feels like workspace and it's easier to concentrate, at least for me, on like 
I really like being around the other people in the office and being able to talk stuff through and just like being with people. Um, yeah, no, that can really be great. super great sometimes. They're, they're definitely yeah. and it's, like, I wish I was in the office for this very reason. Yeah, and like for me, managing remotes is sometimes like it's tricky because you just because you can't see them, and sometimes yeah. it's like oh, I wish you were here to talk something through or just to be around. Like, yeah. um, I call people on like G Chat a lot, and it's just like nice to see their faces. And it's like, <laughs> hey, you. Yeah, I. Um, we so had that's to like learn it's tricky to, how to, to do, do that, that in my publishing department, where we're just like, hey, we're just gonna Skype because we haven't seen each other in a week, and we should probably just you know. Just catch up, see what's up, have like an actual yeah. person there instead of just, you know, communicating over a chat the entire time on Slack yeah, or dude. something like that. Uh, so going back to Kotaku yeah, as a whole. Yeah, Slack. Slack's great. Uh, Kotaku <laughs> as a whole. So how does Kotaku balance the sometimes silly, like, look at this video game cake article with like, the more <laughs> serious, like, investigative reports that dig into development crunch or layoffs or anything like that? Is there, yeah. is, is there ever like a discussion about like, we need to go one direction or the other for fear of like tonal dissonance, or does it work just as Kotaku as a brand being like, you might get this story again about a portal cake over here, but then you might also get this breaking news about the new Assassin's Creed six months before it happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, we've had a long discussion about look at this headlines recently. Um, <laughs> so like it's, I think, you know, there's the day to day life of a website and then there's investigative features and, and something that's great about a team and something that's great about our team is we're able to shift the load. So like we have a, ways that we keep track of like the big features people are working on. And so we're able to like know that, you know, so-and-so is doing a big investigative feature. So more of us can like work on smaller things. Um, and I think that just like, you just sort of need that balance. Um, I don't, I don't feel like we ever veer too far one way or the other. Um, Something that is like really cool about, um, I think, working for a website, and I've talked to like some of our newer writers who've come from freelance about this, is I think when you're a freelancer, you have to sell these big ideas all the time, right? You have to sell these features all the time. That's how you survive. And I think something that's cool about a website is like, oh, I saw this cool thing in a game. I'm going to write a post about it. Like, And it's a, it's a weird way to think, but I also find it really fun sometimes. Like, I like that. I don't think that we... Because something that I think Kotaku does really well is that we think about players and how players are playing games, and that's part of like this being embedded in games after they're released thing. So like people are always doing cool shit and you know GTA or whatever and putting it on YouTube, and like I feel like it's really cool to be like, oh look at this cool thing that happened. Post, you know? Yeah. Um, does it make sense? That, yeah, that has to be kind of freeing where you're not yeah. when you're pitching. Like you said, you have to sell this idea. You have to have it. it has to be usually grander than. Like this dude just did a sick flip off of a yeah. like a ramp in GTA, but people want to see and read about the sick flip in GTA. So when you have that that full time position, you know, at a website, you can actually take the liberty to just do that. How do you determine like what's yeah, worth totally. covering in that way? Is there a certain process that has to go through, or is it kind of this is a cool thing? Let's go for it. That's a good question. I think that we spend a lot of writers spend a lot of time you know seeing what's out there thinking about what they're interested in um we'll talk about stuff sometimes and oh do you think this is interesting but i think like kotaku and like we have a i think if we think it's cool then it's interesting right and i think sometimes you have to think about you know why you think it's interesting or whatever um 
we're very and probably obviously pretty anti like hype. Um, so I think that we do a good job not saying X thing is cool because of who's telling us it's cool. Um, and I think that, yeah, our, our commitment to staying with the life of games after they're out, I think is where a ton of that really cool stuff comes from. Like, like Patricia does all this awesome Fallout 4 stuff. And it's like, look at the ridiculous things people are still doing in Fallout, you know, like that kind of thing I think is like super cool. Um, but it's hard. I mean, other people must talk about this. I think like games, games writing in general can sometimes feel like a weird line between PR and news. And that is like something I at least think about a lot and, and thought about a lot when I was freelancing and, um, is just like, wait, like, what's your job? Like, here's a cool game that I like. What does it mean for me to talk about that? You know? Yeah. Um, it's something that. I think about a lot and I feel like I've talked about a lot in here because um, I mean, you go to any sort of event and you're doing a preview, let's say. There's always that person who's either trying to promote the game, yeah. working on the game in your ear, trying to kind of sell you this narrative about what the game is while you're playing it. And you have to disconnect, okay, what am I actually playing versus what, yeah. are, there actually, what are they actually telling me? Uh, and you look at, right. you know, you, I consider Kotaku to a certain extent an enthusiast site, but not in the way where... You're just like, yeah, let's get on the hype train for Fallout 4. Let's go. It's going to be great compared to, you know, you're honest about that kind of stuff, even if you all love games. So there is that strange balance that, especially in previews, I don't think we've fully been able to kind of write our way through. We still have these previews that when I read them, it's like, it reads like you're an extension of the PR team instead of someone looking at this, not objectively, but someone looking at this, playing it and forming their own opinion instead of retelling what the guide says um, and there's some reviews that read like that so there's it's a weird balance yeah. that you know i'm now you know community management and doing some writing for a development studio and there are times where i write things and i'm like man i've read previews from websites that sound similar to this and yeah, I for the company. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's yeah. something that i still don't feel like we fully grasped yet yeah, I fall into that sometimes if I'm writing like a review draft. Sometimes I'll look at it and I'm like, oh god, like, yeah. ugh, it sounds like a press release. Um, because it's just such an easy language to fall into, and I try to like be specific and be specific to me and be like, don't say that. Like, yeah, I mean, there's sometimes where I mean, I used to do this too, and I usually like early review drafts for GameSpot. There'd be certain spots where I'd look at it and be like, it looks like I grabbed like certain features, like a list of features from the back of the box put it on there yeah. and said like well this year they have this many new this and this this that and it's like okay but like it's great to note that but we have wikipedia articles for that like what do i actually yeah, so does this really impact yeah. this? like if all these new animations in nba 2k16 mean something <laughs> i should be able to find where they mean something instead of just stating that they exist like what does right, that yeah. benefit if i say that in the same way where it's like okay there's great composers on here but if i didn't notice the music very much while i was playing the game I probably yeah, shouldn't probably. list, like, by the way, here's this composer. It, it's a weird yeah, right. balance that, again, I I think about m- probably more than I should, so especially since like, <laughs> right now I'm not actively, you know, writing about games. I'm writing for yeah. games, but it's, right. it's a weird thing. <laughs> that must be cool, though. It's it's super cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it, it's crazy. Like, it's a weird transition, um, especially yeah. since uh, you know, the game we're working on, Here They Lie, is coming out, like, you know, really soon and to be a part of something um, from, uh, you know, when it started to like when it's about to come out is it's super crazy. Um, And (laughs) again, stuff I think about too much. The, the idea of if I ever go 
back into games writing like will this experience writing four games help me will it hurt me will it make me Mm. like be a little bit less harsh on developers early on and like yeah knowing the process this much it's definitely it's a weird jump back and forth but it's been either way if i stay in games it's been fun um yeah i mean that's interesting like i don't know if we're like being a critic is so stressful, right? Like I definitely have that moment sometimes where I'm like, oh, a thing doesn't work as well as it should or something. And then I'm like, well, who am I to tell them that yeah. it, I don't make a game, making games is hard. And then I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, oh. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's weird, right? Like, especially since, um, you, you have that moment of like, you know, I don't make games. Who am I to, you know, judge them? Which, you know, I, I don't think I don't think a critic has to have you know made a game or been part of a game development to be able to you know actually yeah, review something. Sure. But there's also like you know when you're in a team, you see the struggles that happen with dealing with a publisher, dealing with certain deadlines, and you're like, okay, like that was inevitable. Like yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a balance there that uh, some critics are really good at, some are not. Yeah, something that I appreciated, I'd said sort of casually early on to our editor-in-chief was I was, like, trying to review something, and I was like, well, I don't know if it's, like, is it worth somebody $60? And he was like, that's not the point of a review. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and that was, like, some really helpful advice to me. It was like, I don't know what somebody's money is worth. Like, that latest $60 release could be all the money you have for games for the next six months, or it could be, like, not that much, or, like... Even for me, but like when I was freelancing, I was like, "Oh, am I gonna buy new Deus Ex?" Like, I don't know, that's a lot of money. And now I'm like, "Oh, of course I am." Like, yeah. and I think it made not thinking of reviews as consumer products, at least for me, like made me start thinking about reviews really differently. And um, I'm personally always really interested just in like what somebody's experience was with a thing is is sort of like my personal bent like what was your body doing touching this thing but yeah no i think that's a smart way to look at it instead of you know does do you get value out of this because then i think if you start doing like that equation of like yeah, right. is my 60 dollars worth it then you're worried about the number of hours you can put in it versus like okay yeah. how does this you know what does this make me feel like what does it achieve what it set out to do if it doesn't achieve what it's out to do does it still do something very interesting for me yeah. um and do i think other people that have value in this in the end when it's you know a review on GameSpot, i'm worried like okay how did this you know how did i respond to this uh right. and i tried but i mean to a certain extent if a game is five dollars i feel like that's you know you might be reviewing that differently than call of yeah, duty totally. uh right. but in the end yeah i'm much more worried about like firewatch is one of my favorite games this year um yeah i think that was like twenty dollars when it came out it's great yeah. it's just a few hours long but for me I would suggest that yeah. over just about any other AAA big budget thing because of the experience I had with those, you know, three yeah, or four hours totally. was more valuable than, you know, some, but anything I did with No Man's Sky. Like, I like Firewatch oh. more than No Man's Sky. Oh. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know. I, that one's... Yeah. It's, it's funny. I was at a bar a while ago with a, another, like, games writer and this... I think we were talking about Dark Souls, and there was this like older guy like drinking by himself, and he was like, you guys talking about Dark Souls? And I was like, we are talking about Dark Souls. And he, like, knew all these things about Dark Souls, and he, like, didn't have, like, he was one of these people that planned their game purchases really carefully, and he's like, well, what are your fav- five, five favorite games? And me and my friend are like, oh, man, wow, like, 
let's be games writers. I don't know. Well, what do you mean? And he like was immediately able to list like five games and like why. And I was oh, like, man. man, this guy is like, this guy's got it all figured out. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a lot of writers that do that right now. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like it was like it was it was cool to sort of like reconnect with people who like this guy is getting his you know sixty dollars out of Dark Souls three come hell or high water and like. It was just, like, a super interesting conversation. It is cool to see those people who do get, like, way more than their $60 worth from a game. Yeah. Where they just, like, go all the hell in into a game and learn things yeah. about it that I would never have known. And, like, you know, looking at your focus on covering games after launch and, like, seeing yeah. the cool stories in there. I love that because I've always thought that we do this thing where we all get, you know, kind of drawn into the hype. Where you're like, okay... No Man's Sky is coming out. Everyone get excited. Everyone get excited. Everyone get excited. Yeah. And it launches. There's a week of coverage. And then it's gone. And it's like, gone. As if it never yeah. happened. As if No Man's Sky is not a video game anymore. Um, and yeah. I think Kotaku's been smart to find, continue to have that interest in the game. Because there's a lot that happens afterward, especially in something like Destiny and No Man's Sky. I yeah, mean, definitely. Minecraft is the extreme example of like, there's so right. much to talk about here afterwards. Are you finding that to be successful are you finding people are kind of following a game much longer after launch than they were before yeah definitely i mean something i definitely struggled with when i was freelancing was this idea that like you had you had a very narrow window to sell something about a game before it was dead forever and the next new thing came and i think that games and and games writing definitely have that constant hype cycle that yeah. just ends up feeling exhausting and and i know like i definitely like missed the train on things so often and it was like what it's been two weeks i can never write about that game again and so i love that kotaku is doing that and i think that like yeah people do still play these things after they come out like cool things are still happening and i think that you know we have a list of all the games that we're like following and we like reevaluate them and i think in a lot of ways things sort of will naturally ebb and flow and when there's like not as much coverage like they kind of have their own you know arc to them but um yeah, I think it's one of the coolest things that we do and something I'd love to see other sites do, you know, like, or just, yeah, games still exist after they come yeah, out, right? Yeah, people like, forget that. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Like, it's just kind of, a, it releases, the next time we hear the name is when there's a sequel or when there's, like, yeah. you know, DLC or something like that. Um, and That's so ridiculous. It's, it's super strange, and when I, the first thing I ever got published on GameSpot, which I've mentioned in this podcast multiple times, was a uh, Final Fantasy VIII retrospective. It was when, wow. the only reason I could get away with it was because the Steam release was coming out. Uh, yeah, right. Final Fantasy VIII is probably my favorite game ever, just, you know, the time, you know, the age I was when I played it, like, life situations, everything was just kind of coalesced to make this thing that was super memorable for me. Uh, and I like the draw system and everyone else is wrong. But like, <laughs> I remember when I posted that, um, it's like a 2000 word love letter to Final Fantasy VIII and why I liked it. You know, it got hundreds of comments of people either saying, you're an idiot, Final Fantasy VII's better, which I expected, or <laughs> these people connecting on a similar level of like, oh, and here's my experience with it. And there were comments yeah. that were literally 500 words long of people talking about that game and what it meant to them and, you know, the experiences they had with it. And I, again, even beyond covering a game a year after launch, I do think there's value in revisiting something that people can connect with in that way. Where it's, yeah. you know, beyond, I could definitely tell interesting stories about how um, I was homeschooled for many years and I, uh, the way we learned to read for a while was playing The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time and reading the dialogue to my parents where we play the game and every time we talk to someone, that's how we learned yeah. how to read. Oh. And like, that's a story that I never pitched and I probably should have. Because <laughs> there's something there. But, like, 
Uh, I think yeah. that's interesting to have yeah. those experiences. And I mean, you recently wrote, you know, your bizarre, complicated quest to find the world's longest escalator and sleeping dog. <laughs> and that's cool yeah. because that's a game that people almost forgot happened, but you can take time to go back and kind of mine something interesting out of it. I mean, is there value in your mind in revisiting games that aren't just, you know, a year old, but multiple years old and making those connections again? Yeah, I think, like, especially with games, a lot of things can feel like they fall into this, like, they're too old to write about anymore, but they're not old enough to be, like, classic, right? And I think that's part of the cycle of just games being what they are. Like, Sleeping Dogs, like, I had actually, I'd owned it for several years and never played it. It was just, like, in my Steam library, and I randomly picked it up, and we were talking to... I was talking to my colleagues on Slack, and I was like, oh, I just started playing Sleeping Dogs. And everybody was like, oh, my God, that game is so good. And we were all like, oh, wow, remember that game? Like, that game's great. And I was like, oh, I've never played it before. Um, and so that was a really cool moment to, and yet again, yeah, I say Steven at some point. I told him, you know, this story about the escalator, and he was like, why are you not writing that? Like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. Jeez. Because it's so easy to just be like, ah, that game's too old. Nobody cares. And it's like, no, people remember these things. And, yeah, similarly, like, tons of the comments were like, oh, man, that game. Yeah. Um and so I think there's like always value in, in going back to stuff that you already have and and older stuff and and you know remember how this was cool or you know because you have a million games probably and you probably play them you know <laughs> informs sometimes like what we see today too I uh, just had Brendan Sinclair on the podcast he's right for GameSpot now GameIndustry.biz and he was talking about how he does this like ten years ago today feature oh, nice. where he. Yeah. Um, yeah. looks back at like an event that happened 10 years ago where one he's telling me oh, about cool. how um kurt schilling like 10 years ago recently was talking about how you know he's gonna get into the games in a big way and it's gonna be dramatic and amazing and like <laughs> looking at that compared to today it's like man that's like maybe it's not that valuable and <laughs> oh, can't dear. teach something but it's really cool to see and i think sometimes games you look back and it's interesting in that way like <laughs> if i was a freelancer yeah. i would probably go pitch something about banjo kazooie or uh banjo tooie and like my experience with it because ukulele's on the horizon and you can look back at why that game was successful yeah, right. and compare that to can that translate today even with you know it'll have better graphics it'll have you know bigger environments but can the magic of something like banjo kazooie which i love work in a modern game and i think that's valuable i think and again people connect yeah. to those things uh i mean i would write about Donkey Kong 64 with which a lot of people didn't like and i loved and like that's that's why I miss freelancing sometimes because I have these like I made connections with these games at a very you know developmental stage of my life and I think other people do that too and it's fun to go back and explain why you like things beyond like it looks good and the jumping yeah, feels great it's new yeah I recently reviewed Half-Life 2 for our website which I really? realized we had never reviewed yeah like I think last month or something <laughs> and it was, it was it kind of felt like living my dream where it was like Half-Life 2 the Kotaku review and I was like yeah I'm doing it <laughs> um, and a ton of the comments were like what <laughs> why now why now I was like yeah hey, we never did it <laughs> um, and something like that was really great um and it was also really great to to like try to review it not for its nostalgia value or anything, but to be like, what what is it? And um, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah I um, commenters last... were passionate in, in different ways. Uh, the way people are about that game. But uh... one of the um, the last things I wrote for Gamespot that never actually got published. There was just some, oh no, <laughs> some weird uh, things that happened. But it was a uh, a, a an article on Suikoden Two. Which, uh, I'm a big JRPG guy, but I missed that one. Um, yeah. And it was when it was re-released and I wanted to do kind of like a, 
hey, is this worth playing for someone who loves RPGs but never got to play it, so there's no nostalgia there. And yeah. that was just fun to do. It ended up being like a little bit more of a negative article than I thought, so maybe it's a good thing it didn't get published because then <laughs> people would have just gotten really angry at me. But, like, yeah. again, that stuff is – it almost felt like a review of so we get into, you know, in 2015 or whatever it was, and that was really fun to do. So, again, that's that's why I miss games writing in certain ways is those yeah. kind of interesting features. Uh, so now that Kotaku, you know, there's, like, the weird ownership thing with you know, yeah. all the legal <laughs> stuff and all that, and I don't want to get too much into that, but yeah. are there new goals moving forward, or do you feel like Kotaku is going to continue being Kotaku no matter who owns it? Um, I mean, I think we're going to be who we are no matter who owns us. Um, I think that we have a, a a firm ethos that is, you know, inspired by our interests and where we come from. And I think that we're always going to keep doing the kinds of things we do. I mean, we obviously always want to get better and um, improve on things and, and do more kinds of stuff. We've been trying to do, like, more video and, like, you probably know from working at a place like video is just hard to do um sure is like does there always anytime anyone has a video on the schedule i'm like that's gonna go wrong though right <laughs> no like no no i've got it everything is working and then it's like there's some ridiculous thing happening i'm like yeah that's video like yep. whatever um and i like other sites that are able to do such solid video stuff i'm always just like how tell me your secrets <laughs> what are they um so but i think like we're we yeah we i think we have a, a really good guiding ethos um of just finding the what people are doing with things of you know steering away from hype um focusing on you know news and what people are doing and and the life of games and i think we're always gonna have that um yeah no yeah. I, I mean i hope so again yeah. I, I, I love kotaku and you know <laughs> wouldn't gonna, want yeah. to, like if you're gonna change of course you know everyone evolves but hopefully not yeah, into a direction that's like suddenly like oh my god here comes the new call of duty everyone freak out um, yeah definitely not <laughs> last thing real really quick so so we're currently in this age where a lot of sites have closed down uh it, it's a struggle for pure games writing to survive in a world where yeah. streaming and youtubers starting every single video with mm-hmm. hey guys it's your boy insert name oh, here um, <laughs> in order to start every single video uh, hey subscribers sorry i haven't uploaded oh, in so long God, <laughs> it drives i don't get it i don't <laughs> get it too many cuts i don't get it i got it Old man josiah over here in a soapbox but like now that you're seeing zam have a new focus on a lot more writers you're seeing vice getting austin walker and patrick klepek and yeah. having this you know a new kind of area for writers you're seeing glixel and i just recently talked to john davison and talking oh, cool. about him was really interesting you know about rolling stone getting into that do you mm-hmm. feel like the industry is actually in a healthier place than it's been in a while? Ooh, man. Um, yeah, I think I'm something I'm excited about with stuff like this and, and everything is like, I'm excited to see new people moving into these places. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, it feels easy sometimes to me for this industry to feel stagnant or there's that person who's just been around since they were magazines, you know? Um, and so I love, and they're still magazines. Um, <laughs> and so I, I really like seeing just new people coming up and new people getting involved. I like seeing the way that I think the focus is changing. Like I'm 
you know, super excited to see what Austin is going to do um, over at Vice with Patrick. Um, whatever. <laughs> uh, it's great. And, uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of faith in it. I mean, I think, you know, financially making money on the Internet is always going to be, you know, scary. Um, I think, you know, ad, we've seen talk about this at lots of sites. Like the ad revenue model is is complicated. It's busted, and, yeah. Yeah, like definitely very fraught, um, and that's definitely something we all have to sort of think about. But um, I think, as in, t- in terms of the industry and and what our focus is and who's coming in and what they're doing, like I think it's more lively than ever. Really, like things, there's so much room for everything. You know, I love what Zam's doing. I read for them for a while. Like I think they're doing all kinds of awesome stuff, and and. Yeah, there just seems like there's room for everything, you know? There's room for consumer-focused stuff and criticism and everything in between. And um, I think that's just, like, really great, you know? Yeah, I I think even if there aren't as many jobs as I wish there were, what I do love is the diversity and what we can talk about and the way we're talking about it compared to yeah. everything being, you know, enthusiast or here's this product review that reads like you're reading yeah, a TV right. instead of a work of um, quote-unquote art. Yeah, <laughs> and I like that a lot. I mean, I wish I wish there were more jobs. I wish people were getting more money. <laughs> um, yeah. I wish freelancers were getting more money. I understand that everything is, you know, just everyone should more jobs. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the real goal: more jobs, more money. That's that's yeah, what we really need but, here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Riley, if people want to find you, social media, or otherwise, what's the best way to do that? Nice. Gosh, uh, I am on uh, Twitter at rc mcleod. Um, I suppose that my how you spell that will be written down someplace. Um, or you can uh, find my email at Kotaku um, on our masthead. All right, great. Well, I've been uh, wanting to talk to you for a while, so I really appreciate you stopping by uh, and yeah. discussing yeah. this industry with me. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to have uh, Jason Trier on the podcast in the near future, so um, oh, I, nice. will sure <laughs> <laughs> I will make sure not to mention. I will make sure not to mention my sweet and down that never got published. Uh, so yeah. yeah, so thank you again, and hopefully everyone tunes back in for the next episode of sure. the 1099.